Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Rumors can be dangerous things. Rumor is basically a, a story that seems rational, but usually is steeped in speculation. There are basically unsubstantiated stories that are built sometimes on a sliver of the facts, armed, you might say, with an angle on the truth, but a lot of speculation, and they are destructive in their forces. They can sap morale, they can create divisions. If you've ever been a part of a a company or an office where rumors began to swirl about buyouts or layoffs or changes in leadership or or whatever, you know what I'm talking about. Or if you know something of the story, even in 1938 of H.G. Wells and his uh, work, War of the Worlds, being read over the radio and creating a, a stir, or you might even say a fright among the peoples on Halloween Day, where people everywhere were thrown into a panic and began to spread throughout the streets this idea that the world was truly being invaded by aliens. Well, in a similar kind of a way, a rumor had spread in the Thessalonian church. Not concerning aliens, but someone had entered into the church and stirred up a rumor based on a sliver of the truth, but really full of an enormous amount of speculation. It was a rumor claiming that Christ had already returned. It was propagated by a letter which claimed to be from the Apostle Paul, a pseudepigrapha, a false letter, but some people took it at face value and began to panic and probably gained traction as they pointed to some connections of what people were experiencing around them, some sliver of the truth that seemed to substantiate the rumor particularly when it came to their sufferings and their persecution. The church in Thessalonica was one of the early churches the Apostle Paul founded, and yet it faced almost immediately an enormous wave of of suffering and persecution. And so this small sliver of truth, matched with a lot of speculation, gave life to the rumor. And the rumor gave way to panic. Because they believed that Christ had already returned, and so therefore, they were headed into a time of great tribulation. It was no comforting thought for them. It was a a, a terrifying thought for them. And so Paul writes 2 Thessalonians, this letter, primarily to refute this claim to calm their fears, to remind them of some of the key facts that they had learned regarding the second coming of Christ, key facts which explain basically why it is impossible for them to come to this conclusion that Jesus had already returned, because there were certain events that would precede or coincide with the return of Christ, which hadn't happened yet. If these events were taking place, they would have certainly given evidence that Jesus had returned. But by the fact that they had not taken place, this is the prime exhibit that Paul presents on why they should not accept such a conclusion. Now, because of the Christmas season, it's been a couple of weeks really since we've had an opportunity to look at this chapter 
And so I wanted to just sort of reframe it in our minds by reading once again this, uh, this section, beginning in verse 1 all the way down to verse 15. Paul says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, When I was still with you, I told you these things. And you know what is restraining him. You know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through the the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm, And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, it's obvious from this passage that they were upset by all of this. They were upset by the idea of the return of Christ and the day of the Lord. You look throughout the pages of Scripture, and particularly in the writings of Paul... The return of Christ was supposed to be a comforting thought for believers. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when Paul talks about the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, our being snatched away together to Him and meeting Him in the air, he says we are to comfort one another with these words. So this was supposed to be a comforting thought, but there was anything but comforting to the Thessalonians. They were upset by the idea that Jesus had returned. And that's because Paul had taught them that when the day of the Lord arrived, they would be spared from it. They would be raptured out of it, as we say, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, before the day of the Lord arrived. That's what's obvious by what he says here because they were saying that they were in the day of the Lord. So there must have been some framework in their minds of activity 
some framework of understanding of events that would take place after this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, something that framed their understanding about the day of the Lord that upset them. And that's exactly what you find whenever you look into the Scripture. You find this sequence of events that begins with the return of Christ and the rapturing together, uh, the rapturing of the church, the gathering together of the church together with Him, and then the outbreak of what is known as the day of the Lord, the judgment that God will pour out on the face of the earth. And this is obviously what their understanding was from this text. Based on what Paul had taught them, they would have expected to be gathered together to the Lord when he returned, delivered out of this world before all these events took place. But this pseudo letter had come and had convinced them that somehow they had missed it. That somehow the return of Christ had happened in some secret way or something like that. And they had missed out. And so in order to resolve all of their confusion, in order to solve all of their um, uh, fears or calm all their fears, Paul wants to clarify the truth about all these things. To assure them that they're not in the day of the Lord, that they've not missed the rapture, and that they still have hope for the future. And so he basically does this by pointing to certain events, as I said, that would coincide or precede the day of the Lord. And he, he, he does that really in a series of explanations that we started a few weeks ago looking at the first two of these. There are eight, uh, as I said, in total that, that span throughout this chapter Eight explanations of the day of the Lord. Eight explanations, not only of the day of the Lord, but also of their hope, their source of hope in the face of of the coming day of the Lord. Eight explanations that detail their distress and their hope at the end of the age. The first one we saw in verses 1 and 2 was the source of their distress or the distress they were feeling. This false letter, which wasn't presenting something so absolutely novel and unique that it would have been immediately recognized as false. It was presenting an eschatological framework that would have been similar enough to what Paul said and yet twisted ever so slightly so that they could be so deceived. And it threw the Thessalonians into distress. That was Uh, leads to the second explanation in verses 3 through 5, which really is the description of the Antichrist. And this this is sort of the chief evidence that Paul provides to assure them that the day of the Lord hasn't arrived. And it has to do with really two things. It has to do with what he calls the rebellion or the apostasy and the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness. The day of the Lord could not be here, he says, because these two things have not yet come. And he goes on to give a kind of a detailed description, particularly of this man of lawlessness, to remind them who he is so that they could easily look around and come to the right conclusion that these things are not taking place. He says, in fact, down in verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. What things? Well, the things in verses 3 and 4. The day 
the, the things concerning the, the man of lawlessness in the day of the Lord. The one who, the one who is to be revealed, the one who he says in verse 4, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. All of that, Paul says, is going to coincide with what he calls this apostasy, which is a word I think I mentioned last time. It's a word that, that we have associated particularly with religious rebellion, but the word itself has a broad range of meaning in the Greek language. It can mean political rebellion, it can mean military rebellion, and really all of those things are encompassed in the work of this man of lawlessness. Paul is describing a ruler in the Antichrist who will mount a political, eventually a military rebellion, but will also mount a worldwide anti-God rebellion a religious apostasy so that he exalts himself against every so-called God, an object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, the only one who's worthy of worship. The, the temple, as we said last time, can only be the temple in Jerusalem. The temple that at this point was still standing would eventually be torn down and must be rebuilt for all of these things to take place. Now this is what the prophet Daniel described, the abomination of desolation by the Antichrist. He goes into the temple in Jerusalem. He desecrates the temple. He establishes worship of himself in the midst of that. Jesus himself picked up those same words and talked about it as the the coming event. John would reiterate these very same things. All of this points to this rebellion, this apostasy, which culminates in this ultimate act of apostasy and triggers the events that really, that really manifest God's judgment on the face of the earth. They manifest the day of God's wrath, the day of the Lord. All of it taking place in what Daniel describes as the seven-year tribulation. He says that this this man's reign will reach its peak at the three-and-a-half-year mark, Daniel 7.25. His reign will be limited to a time, times, and half a time. One, two-and-a-half, that's three-and-a-half. He will be limited to three-and-a-half years of this tribulation. He rises in the first half of the tribulation, reaches his peak, establishes himself as an object of worship, and wreaks havoc, as the book of Revelation says, for 42 months. This tribulation period, when he captures the world, obliterates every traditional religion, massacres everybody that he can, including those who in the previous three and a half years had actually come to believe in Christ. He wipes out the Jewish people to the best of his ability. He makes a peace treaty with them to begin with, but then breaks that treaty halfway through the tribulation period. And he goes in and wipes out their religion, desecrating their temple. The next verse in Daniel, Daniel 7.26, says that after that, God's judgment will come against him. And his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. And then verse 27. The kingdom 
and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting, everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Now, this is what the Thessalonians would have understood. They would have understood this sequence of events. They would have understood that there would come a day of God's wrath and God's judgment, but they would have understood that they would have been removed from that wrath and removed from that judgment. And as God pours it out on the face of the earth and then eventually conquers this Antichrist, they would then be recipients of the kingdom delivered up to them, the final end. And that's Paul's point here. He's reminding them that they can't be in the day of the Lord if for no other reason there's no Antichrist. And this apostasy is not taking place. And all those events that are described in the book of Daniel aren't there. All the things that Paul personally taught them are not taking place. And so it can't be happening. Now with all that discussion about the Antichrist... It leads Paul to a further explanation, and really our focus this morning, our third point in our outline, we saw what was distressing the Thessalonians, we saw the description of this Antichrist, but Paul wants to explain it a bit more. He wants to explain a little bit about the delay in his coming, the delay of the coming of the Antichrist. And so in verse 6 he says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Paul says the Antichrist hasn't come, but there will be a time when he is revealed. But for now, he's restrained. And interestingly, he says to the Thessalonians, you know what restrains them. You know what it is. You know what that identification is. They knew it because Paul had taught them when he was with them explicitly. So that he doesn't even have to refer any longer to this restraining influence in any more detail. And of course, puts us at a disadvantage because we weren't there to hear all those details. Because Paul doesn't feel compelled to repeat them. He simply says, you know what is restraining him. Now that has led to all kinds of discussion and debate about this restraining influence. All kinds of ideas about what is this restraining force. And the debate really arises not only because Paul doesn't repeat the details, but because when he does so, when he speaks about this restraining force, he uses two different pronouns to refer to it. In one place, he refers to it as that, a a neuter, uh, non-gender, we might say, pronoun. Neither masculine nor feminine. A neuter pronoun. And then in verse 7, when he refers to it again, he refers to it with a masculine pronoun, he. And this change in the gender from neuter to masculine has confounded biblical interpreters through the years. And consequently, there have been all kinds of suggestions. Suggestions all over the map 
about what this restraining influence is. Some people believe that Paul's referring to the preaching of the gospel, for example. They would say that is what ultimately keeps the restrainer in check. That he, uh, he can't really have his full influence because the gospel, God has determined, is to be preached in all the world. To every tribe and language, to every nation throughout the, the earth, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. Giving you the impression that there's going to be some provision for that to take place. Some, you might even say, restraint. But of course, if, if that is the restraining influence that Paul's talking about, it doesn't make any sense why he would refer to it with a masculine pronoun, he. It might make sense why he would refer to it as a, as a neuter, sort of a general pronoun, but not the masculine. And so a lot of people have not latched onto that. Others have suggested that this is a reference to the influence of Christians as salt and light in society. We're the preserving kind of influence on the world. And, and so therefore, we kind of restrain all evil. We restrain the work of, of, of the enemy and the work of the Antichrist by upholding righteousness. It's also difficult to see how that would be true. MacArthur says here, the church has never been able to restrain even human evil. It may do so to some extent in the lives of its members, but outside the world continues to grow worse and worse, a situation that is especially characterized by the end of times, as 2 Timothy chapter 3 says. So many times throughout history, the church has faced evil rulers and has been really overwhelmed by them, persecuted by them, tortured, killed by these evil rulers, seemingly powerless in the face of them. And this Antichrist will be a ruler like none other. In fact, down in verse 9, it's clear that he will be endowed not just with, with human ingenuity, but he will be endowed with supernatural, satanically energized power. And so Christians, while we certainly want to uphold righteousness, don't have the resources to stand against such an evil ruler. And besides all of that, to say that the influence of Christians is what holds back this Antichrist still doesn't explain the change in gender for these pronouns from neuter to masculine. Others, therefore, have suggested that the restraining influence are things like the nation of Israel, which the Antichrist will wipe out and destroy. Or they would say that the restraining influence is governments, which Romans 13 tells us is there for the punishment of evil and the praise of those who do good. Its, its purpose is to restrain evil. Others suggest that it's just not particular governments, but a general morality that exists in civilization. And since the man of lawlessness opposes law, he is against law and order. He clears all of that out of his way so that his destructive path can move forward because he is a man opposed to law, that simply the removal of these laws is that event. But again, none of those things 
adequately match this change in gender from neuter to masculine. A popular interpretation really from the early church was that this was the Roman Empire. The empire which would be the general designation in the neuter and the ruler or the emperor in that empire uh, which would be the masculine pronoun. But that's also difficult because in many ways the Roman Empire embodied and propagated everything that Satan is about. Everything that the Antichrist is about. They repeatedly tried to stamp out Christianity. If anything, they would have not restrained that kind of work of lawlessness or that kind of man of lawlessness. They would have supported it. Not to mention the glaring fact that the Roman Empire disappeared a millennium and a half ago and And yet, no uh, return of Christ, no particular uh, antichrist has arisen. None of the things that Paul talks about here. Whatever the identity of this restrainer is, it's clear that it, it is both neuter and masculine. Or to put it in the words of John Stott, it is both something and someone. It is both a pressure and a person. And when you look into the scripture, the only person who's ever described in that way is the Holy Spirit. Particularly in the book of John, uh, we read earlier from John 14 in our scripture reading time, the, the upper room discourse, John 14, 26, it says, the helper, masculine, the Holy Spirit, neuter, whom the Father will send in my name, he or it, neuter, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Or John 15, 26, when the helper, masculine, comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, neuter, who proceeds from the Father, he or it, neuter, will bear witness to me. And John does this a number of times. Those aren't the only two times. A number of times throughout the upper room discourse, as he's talking about the Holy Spirit, He is repeatedly shifting back and forth between neuter and masculine, neuter and masculine. And Paul would, of course, have been very familiar with this. In the Greek language, the Holy Spirit can properly be understood both as a masculine or as a neuter at times. And Paul does the same thing here. He refers to this restrainer in the same way. This is a person... And it's a pressure, a force. It's capable of personal manifestation. He is sometimes present and he's sometimes not. All of those things properly describe the Holy Spirit. He's both a person and a power. There have been times when he manifested himself and times when he did not. We're not talking about omnipresence. When we talk about the Holy Spirit manifesting himself, we're not saying that there are places throughout the known universe where he doesn't reside. Because he is God, he is omnipresent, just like God the Father and God the Son. He's everywhere at all times. He knows all things at all times. But the scripture still speaks about the Holy Spirit coming and going. The Spirit coming on certain people at certain times for certain events. 
Or Jesus even promises right there in John 14 to send the Holy Spirit. Whenever he ascends into heaven, he says, the helper, I'm going to send him to you. Using sort of these locative or or locational uh, kind of language. He speaks about the Holy Spirit having not yet been poured out or not yet sent. There was a time on the earth when the Spirit had not been sent, had not been manifested in a way that he would be manifested, particularly on the day of Pentecost and the birth of the church. And so now he is here in a unique way. And it wouldn't be shocking then to speak of a day when the Holy Spirit is sent away or, or, or is taken away, taken out of the way as Paul describes here. Again, he's not talking about omnipresence. He's just using the language that's typically used of the Holy Spirit in the Scripture. He's talking about a particular manifestation, a particular work of the Holy Spirit for a particular season. Like the work of the Holy Spirit within the church on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit also has a particular work restraining, holding back, keeping down this lawlessness and this man of lawlessness. Much like Jesus, who said that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, there will come a day when that convicting work will cease. When the door is flung open to the work of lawlessness, is flung open to the Antichrist to do his work, the restraining influence is taken out of the way, And hell breaks loose on earth. Now some people believe that this removal of the Holy Spirit is an indirect reference to the removal of the church with the rapture. And that's certainly possible. The Holy Spirit resides in the church. The church is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the removal of the church and the rapture would match that. But it's not necessary to think of it that way. Not critical that you think of that way of it that way. This could simply be a separate work of the Holy Spirit restraining the world through conviction, through simply supernatural force. Very similar to what you read in Genesis chapter six, when in verse three, God says, My spirit will no longer contend with men. And so he removes or he halts his work of the Holy Spirit at that time and man plunges into more and more evil so that in verse 5 it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and he determined at that point he would judge the world by a worldwide flood. In the same way, there's going to come a day when the Lord's Spirit no longer contends with the mounting evil around the world. He removes his spirit yet again. He ceases to contend with man. He ceases to convict them of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He ceases to convict them in their consciences. He removes the restraining influence on society. And lawlessness and the man of lawlessness are unleashed. This is what Paul's saying to these Thessalonians. You know that there's a force. You know 
that, that there's something and someone who is keeping Satan from doing all that he wants to do concerning lawlessness, concerning the Antichrist. You know this. And you ought to understand this. This level of depravity and debauchery and rebellion that hasn't taken place yet. As bad as it is in their persecution is not as bad as it will be. As bad as you and I might think that the world is right now, as, as duplicitous as people are, as cruel as people are, as bigoted as people are right now, as underhanded and crafty and greedy and lustful and murderous as people are right now, it is nothing compared to what is coming. God is restraining. By His Holy Spirit, He is restraining. But He won't do it forever. As Paul says there, the lawless one will be revealed in His time. God has His purposes. We don't know always what those purposes are in the secret counsels of God. But it's very clear in this passage God has the ability to restrain evil. God has the ability to restrain the evil one. He has that capability. It's also very clear that he doesn't do it to the full extent of his ability. In fact, there's going to come a day when he's going to completely take away his restraining influence. People can't get their mind around that. Whenever something terrible happens in the world, their knee-jerk reaction is always, well, God would never allow that. Well, the Scripture tells us He does. In fact, the Scripture tells us that not only does He allow these things to happen, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse before it gets better. There's going to come a day when this restraining influence is going to be taken away. By God's sovereign power and he will amazingly allow the world to plunge itself as an act of judgment against the world. He will allow the world to plunge itself into more and more self-destructive wickedness. And all of these things, all of these things must take place before the end. In the meantime, Paul says in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way. So already, Paul says, there's already a connection. There's already an eschatological connection between the kind of wickedness that you observe around in the world, the kind of evil that is out there in the world. There's already a connection between what you see and what you experience and what will come at the end. The, the, The only difference is That what you experience now is just a grain of what is to come. You think that you are suffering now. You think that your circumstances are bad right now. It's nothing compared to what is to come. The mystery of lawlessness is at work and it will remain at work. It will continue to work. Subversively, surreptitiously, 
working through all deception. It will seek to dupe people through systems of entertainment and systems of education and systems of society, whatever it might be. It will do everything it can to sow deception and lies into the hearts of people who so willingly give themselves over to it. This character of lawlessness is at work. John, remember, tells us in 1 John 2.18 that already many antichrists have already gone out into the world. The lawlessness is at work. The antichrists, I told you last, last time, these antichrists who are being groomed by, by Satan. He doesn't know when the return of Christ will happen. So he always has some fresh face that he's grooming to be this person. And John says there already are many of them out there. Jesus said there already would be many who came. But the restrainer is holding all of it back. The full range of the outbreak of lawlessness. It's called a mystery. Uh, actually. Uh, some versions translate it the secret of lawlessness. Uh, the real word is mystery. Which is a word in the, in the New Testament. For something that cannot be humanly comprehended. Apart from revelation. Every time Paul uses it. Throughout uh, his writings, 1 Corinthians 2, Ephesians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 1, he uses this word mystery. It's always a reference to those things which could not be comprehended. As he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, which, which uh, mind hasn't entered into the heart of, uh, of man's mind, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't beheld, all of the, the, the typical ways that we acquire knowledge could not discover these things. And so, the world will go on in its same kind of deception when it comes to this lawlessness. It will be unaware, unsuspecting. It will go on, as I said, subversively, undermining all the foundations that it can to the extent that God will let it. It will threaten the security and the peace of the world, it will infringe even upon Christians who are undiscerning and give themselves over to these workings. And if they're not aware of it, they themselves are being deceived. You remember over in first, uh, Second Timothy, just a couple of pages over in your Bible, Second Timothy chapter 3, Paul had told the Ephesians, and he had told Timothy here, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Well, what kind of times? People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God and having the appearance of godliness but denying His power. That's what's going to happen in the latter times. That's the way the world will move forward under this power of lawlessness. Hypocrisy, immorality, self-centeredness, arrogance, a lack of all decorum, a lack of respect. 
All still somewhat restrained, but nevertheless at work. At work. And yet there will come a day when all restraint is removed and the total ferocity is unleashed. Thankfully, thankfully, you and I are not in the dark. As Paul says back over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that you and I are fully aware that the day of the Lord, it comes like a thief in the night, a, th- a stealthy thing. While people are saying there's peace and security, suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you and I are not in darkness, brothers, that the day should surprise us like a thief, for you are all children of light and children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. And so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Paul's already told these Thessalonians, look, this day is creeping, it's coming, it's like a thief in the night. Now he tells them this power of lawlessness is already at work, but he's already told them, you have no excuse. Sure, the world around you is doing all these things. Sure, the world around you is accepting of all this arrogance and selfishness, but that is no excuse for you to be duped. It shouldn't be a mystery to you. You shouldn't be still so blind to what's taking place. This mystery, which is a mystery to the world, this destructive force, which is so destructive to the world, you cannot let it creep into your life, he says. Put on what? The breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. You know, you and I learn about these things. They make sense to us because, as I said, it's an eschatological connection between the kind of evil that we see taking place right now and that evil which will be full-blown in the day of the Lord. We know about those things because we can see some, some residue of it right now. But thankfully, if you know Christ, you won't have to see it. Not with your own eyes. When hell is manifested on earth, you won't have to see it. Because God has not destined you, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God has not destined you for wrath. But He's destined you to be delivered. To be saved. Through all of those things. You see, Paul's interest in all of this, when he writes all these things... It's not just so that you can establish some sort of timeline and you can kind of fill in uh, some chart that you might keep of the end times. It's not any of that. But his emphasis over and over and over again is on the overriding sovereignty of God. That even now, whatever you're seeing taking place, isn't taking place apart from God's sovereignty. In fact, God is very much involved restraining what's taking place right now. And He will continue to do so, Paul says, until He's taken out of the way. 
In fact, in verse 8, he says, when the lawlessness is revealed, he immediately tells us what? That this is the same one whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. God is going to be victorious. He's victorious over all the injustice that you see right now. He'll be victorious over this Antichrist when he comes. That's the comfort that you and I take. The comfort that he is sovereignly the winner, the victor. It's also the comfort that if we are in Christ, he will spare us from all the worst that is to come. And that's our our challenge for you this morning if you don't know him. If you have fallen under this delusion, if you are seeing the, the destructive forces of lawlessness wreaking havoc in your life and in your home, your family, your job place, wherever it might be, if you're seeing those things, that you would come out of the darkness and into the light, that you would lay aside your life, as Jesus says, that you would lose your life. So that you can ultimately find it. That's the pathway of salvation. Salvation not only now, but salvation even at the end. In a moment, we're going to finish our service with a prayer. And we certainly hope that uh, you, if you haven't received Jesus Christ in that way, if you haven't given your life to Him in that way, that you would do so today. That we will close out. And if you want to know more about how you can know Christ, about how He can change your life. I I pray that you would come see me and our visitor reception, see any of our elders, any of our staff. We'd love to be able to share with you from the scripture exactly what God's plan of salvation is. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with, with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful to you that you give to us so many precious promises of your protection. And even as we read about what is coming in the day of judgment and day of wrath, we have no need to fear because you do reign. And Lord, we will put our hope in that. We'll not be shaken. We'll not be rattled. And even now, as the mystery, the secret of lawlessness is at work, we will not be shaken. For you, O Lord, reign. You reign supreme. And our hope will be stayed on you. Lord, we pray for those who are caught up in it though. Those who are facing the turmoil in their life of lawlessness. Of all the evil that comes through sin and its destructive forces. We pray, Father, that you would rescue them. That they would surrender, finally. Their life, their pathway to you. And that through you, they would find life and life abundantly. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.